Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. The word show business is not used as much today as it once was. It's been replaced by more corporate words like entertainment, media, streaming, nonlinear programming, etc. But all of it is still that magical mixture of show and business, the ability to entertain and to make a profit. While it's often overlooked by the public, the link between what we watch in movies and on television and the business, the money, and the people behind it are inseparable. Business decisions impact and shape what we see. Just as one hit can change the finances of an entire company or industry. Just like in politics, follow the money. The story of HBO and the way in which it disrupted television beginning back in the early 1970s is perhaps the penultimate blending of these elements. Just as we are going through a sea change with respect to how stories are delivered to us, HBO was the creative destruction of its day. Its motto, like Facebook, could easily have been move fast and break things. And just as HBO disrupted television, Blockbuster would eventually disrupt HBO, Netflix would disrupt Blockbuster, and technology and streaming would disrupt everything. But in many ways, this larger story all starts with HBO. That's the story that my guest James Andrew Miller tells in his comprehensive and entertaining oral history of HBO, Tinderbox. James Andrew Miller has written books that bring the media industry into bold relief and takes us deep inside the people whose decisions on any given day shape institutions like Saturday Night Live, ESPN, the talent agency CAA, and now HBO. It is my pleasure to welcome James Andrew Miller back to this program to talk about his new book, Tinderbox, HBO's ruthless pursuit of new frontiers. James, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. Go back to 1972. Talk a little bit about the birth of HBO with about 400 subscribers somewhere in Pennsylvania. Right, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Uh, less than 400. And so you have an incredibly modest beginning with few expectations, quite frankly. Uh, HBO at that point was owned by Time, Inc., uh, you know, the venerable journalistic institution and the owner of many, many famous successful brands like Time Magazine, Sports Illustrated, People, Money, and everything else. They were diversifying. They went into cable, then they went into pay television with HBO, but there were very modest expectations for it. In fact, one of the things that I really enjoyed reporting on was that early in its infancy, HBO nearly got executed, so to speak, by Time Inc. There was probably three or four times when they were ready to hit the delete key on it. And uh, I think it, for those of us who have grown up with HBO and seen that it's, you know, its impact on television and the culture, that seems like a crazy idea, but it really, it, it narrowly escaped death several times. One of the things you point out is that HBO was always a child of something, whether it was of Time or ultimately of Time Warner, that it never existed as an entity solely unto itself. Right. I mean, you could never, for example, you could never at any point during the past 49 years go out and buy a stock called HBO. And the reason why I thought that was instructive to point out to the readers because even though I try and trace the pedigree of HBO's growth and its impact on television and the culture, I think you also have to, at some key moments, I felt obligated to tell the story of its numerous parent 
companies because that had a huge effect on HBO. Uh, in Time Inc. merged with Warner Brothers, so then there was Time Warner. We all remember when Ted Turner came along in 1995, became part of Time Time Warner. And then, of course, at the turn of the century, we had that debacle called Time Warner AOL. Right. Uh, 2006, they were finally able to jettison AOL and Time Warner became Time Warner and uh, Time Warner AOL became Time Warner. And then we saw AT&T come in, take it over. And then just this year, we saw Discovery come in and take over from AT&T. It's going to be approved next year, or they're hoping it'll be approved next year. So I think, I think you, you, you know, each one of those corporate parent changes uh, you know, required HBO to have different kinds of rules and different kinds of freedoms. And uh, it was a lot for them to get used to. To what extent does the risk profile of HBO, and it was always a risk, as you say, from the very beginning to the point where they put on comedians and boxing to, to original programming and original movies later, to what degree was the risk profile always shaped by the fact that there was a parent there watching over it or more specifically to protect under it financially? Um, I don't think that much. I, there were times when it was, but I think more importantly to your question, the key was HBO's ability to stay true to its central premise, which is that they were not going to try and mimic or covet what the networks were doing. In fact, they did just the opposite. And so you see early on, you mentioned boxing. You mentioned, uh, you know, some of the things that HBO did, uh, the comedy specials, some of the things that HBO did early on in its existence was to make sure that the audience, their viewers, their pay subscribers were getting things that they couldn't get at the network. So a quick example, if you were a comedian in the 70s and the 80s, even the 90s, you know, your big, like, the whole big, your Mount Everest was four and a half minutes on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. And if you got on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, you had network sensors breathing down your back and you had certain things you could say and certain things you couldn't say. And that was it. And HBO went to these comedians and they said, you know what? We're going to give you an hour. We're going to give you an hour to say anything you want and to basically do anything you want. And as a result, you have like George Carlin literally doing the seven words you can't say on television, on television, on HBO. You have uh, people like Eddie Murphy, Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, I mean, a host of comedians come in. Sarah Silverman, uh, Roseanne Barr. I, they come in and they have tremendous freedom. And all of a sudden, subscribers know that they can get something that they couldn't elsewhere. Boxing was dead sport. They brought it to life. HBO brought it to life. So at each iteration, at each key inflection point for HBO, they're managing to do something that separates them from the three broadcast networks. How lucky was HBO, or what was it in its DNA that seemed to provide continuous good and smart leadership for the company? Well, I think they really were lucky. I think that, yeah, I think they were very lucky. <laughs> it's a great question, and I think the answer is very. Look, the, one of the things that I started to realize about HBO's leadership was 
each individual who became CEO or had a programming or whatever was uniquely suited to their time. Michael Fuchs, who was, I call him George Washington, uh, HBO's George Washington, he was there starting in the 70s, but he was the CEO from 1984 to 1995, 11 years. And Fuchs was fearless. Fuchs had no qualms whatsoever about all of a sudden getting on the phone with Brad Gray, who represented Gary Shandling, hearing an idea and saying, listen, you know what? We're going to give you a whole season. Let's do it. There goes the Larry Sanders show. He, he, he told Sheila Nevins, who was running documentaries, I want you to go out, win a bunch of awards, and I want, you know, we're going to finance you. Uh, he was, you know, act, actively interested in getting late night, you know, sexy programming on HBO because, again, that's something the networks didn't do. And he was bold and very, very aggressive about HBO doing its own movies and developing its own movies. So I think, you know, he was there. Jeff Bucus followed him, really smart financial guy who teamed up with Chris Albrecht, who was a brilliant programmer, Carolyn Strauss. They brought, my gosh, just in a period of a short time. Can you imagine Sex in the City, The Sopranos, and Curb Your Enthusiasm? Just in, I mean, like in a very narrow window of time. I mean, it's, I mean, look, Sex in the City is doing a reboot even as we speak. Right. Curb Your Enthusiasm is still on the air, and The Sopranos rests comfortably on television in Mount Rushmore. So, I mean, that's a, you know, that's a pretty auspicious beginning for them, uh, you know, in terms of when Jeff was. Uh, running things, uh, you know, I could go on and on, but the point is, um, I think that they had great leaders when they needed them. Go back a little bit before the original programming and, and after the initial boxing comedians and specials, there was this this idea of running movies uncut and uncensored. That was a big deal in its day. It was part of their central value proposition to viewers. I mean, look, there wasn't, this was before Blockbuster was on every corner. This is before there was VHS tapes. So you have HBO saying, not only we're going to show you a movie, but we're going to show it to you without commercials, and we're going to show you the violence, the sex, the, the cursing, everything, just the way it was released in the theater. Um, a lot of people were attracted to that. As well as different parents along the way, one of the other things that HBO had to respond to were changes that were constantly taking place within the broader entertainment business. Talk a little bit about that and how it affected the decisions they made and the programs they put on. Well, I mean, look, I think that when blockbusters appeared on every corner, HBO did get into original programming more. They knew that they had to do that. They had some early shows like First and Ten with O.J. Simpson, Dream On, which was created by the duo who brought us Friends, um, Oz, which was a stellar show, very, very dramatic, and of course Larry Sanders. They they didn't care about ratings, and they cared what they cared about was critical praise and awards because they felt that that wound up being a better selling point and a better branding, uh, you know, support of the brand HBO than anything else. Um, I think that one of the things that you start to realize with when you talk about like the current time and streaming and how Netflix became Netflix and why couldn't HBO become Netflix? I think part of it is because of that AOL disaster, HBO and the company itself, Time Warner, couldn't afford to take a chance on spending a lot of money on 
on a streaming service, which, you know, they had to deliver, they had to deliver earnings and positive earnings to their investor base. Um, something Netflix didn't have to worry about. So I think that's probably the key example of when it affected what HBO and the parent company was doing. It is interesting to look at it, and you've looked at this in, in a larger sense in, in this and in your other work, this relationship between, and we saw it most recently with AT&T, this relationship between the investor base of a parent company and a company that wants to be in the entertainment business. Right, and there's different rules for different companies. I mean, look, the people who invest in Netflix, they don't care about Netflix making a profit. They care about it becoming a monopoly as a tech company. And the Department of Justice isn't worried about them. But if you're Time Warner and you've just been written, you've written off $160 billion for AOL and you have an investor class that is demanding profits and demanding the highest earnings possible, then you just can't compete with Netflix. And by the way, if you try and merge with somebody, I mean, AT&T was a different, but if you try and merge with somebody who's doing the same thing, then you're going to get blocked by the Justice Department. So it's really, it's hardly a level playing field. Let's put it that way. You talk about the successes, things like Sex and the City and The Sopranos and Curb Your Enthusiasm. To what extent did this success breed more success? And did it have the, the effect in some cases of, of making those leading the company fly maybe a little too close to the sun? Well, I mean, look, I think that Larry Sanders and Oz sent a powerful message to Hollywood saying not only that HBO was open for business, but that they were not going to be bound by the rules that the networks did. You know, Tom Fontana, who created Oz, you know, uh, the executive, Chris Albrecht, asked him, name something that you weren't allowed to do on network television. He said, well, I wanted to kill off the lead guy in the first episode. And Chris Albrecht goes, go ahead and do it. So, I mean, Larry Sanders showed the kind of freedom, I mean, you know, to the community that you could never have in a network. I mean, they, they turned in a show 20 minutes long once. I mean, Gary Shandling took off a year. You could never do that at a network. And so what you saw is, to come back to your question, Curb, Sopranos, and, and uh, Sex and the City, they all had so much freedom in the hands of the creators and the showrunners that that's why you get like an Alan Ball with Six Feet Under and, you know, uh, the astonishing David Simon with The Wire. People wanted to work at HBO. They knew that they would be protected. They knew that they would have creative autonomy. That's a big deal. How did they see themselves in relationship to the motion picture business? We talked about it vis-a-vis television. How did they see themselves vis-a-vis movies? Well, look, HBO made a lot of movies, a lot of HBO movies they made, um, they won a lot of awards and, uh, they were very aggressive about it. Now, because this is another example of your question about the parent company, because Warner brothers was part of the same ecosystem time Warner, uh, HBO was never allowed to do theatrical films. They tried and, uh, Warner brothers shut them down. So I think there, that was a, you know, Definitely one of those instances where things might have been different for HBO had they not been owned by Time Warner. In many ways, when we look at HBO today and you look at something like Succession, which essentially has no stars and and, and really counter to, to normal programming, has no characters that are likable in the entire show— 
To what extent is the HBO tradition going to be ca- continue to be carried on? And uh, do you think that it's going to change now? Well, I don't think it's going to change because they need that more than ever in order to be able to distinguish themselves in the marketplace. And so I think Succession is a great example of HBO still managing to come up with something that's incredibly unique. It t- it becomes part of the zeitgeist. I mean, you know, it's so funny because if you really think about it, Succession seems everywhere. Everybody's talking about it. It's not as big a commercial hit as, let's say, The Sopranos was or Game of Thrones. But in terms of, like, it's blip on the radar screen of the culture, it's huge. And I I think, you know, you, you point out two rule breakers right there, which is no stars and no likable characters. And I, so I think, you know, what you see is they're doubling down on that formula and and they think it's going to work for them. And it does. And finally, talk a little bit about the cultural impact of HBO. We've been talking about the, you know, the, the movie business, the entertainment business. It's had a huge impact on the culture. And to what extent do the people that work there realize that? Oh, I think everybody who works there realizes it, and I think they're enormously proud of it. Look, you can go back to you know movies that HBO did and documentaries they did, like If These Walls Could Talk About Abortion. They talk about uh, they were talking about gender issues and and uh, I mean, my gosh, injuries to football players uh, 20 years before anybody was was doing it. I I think that they have this ability to develop programming, whether it's documentaries, movies made for television or their series um, that wind up going beyond just a show. And they wind up being part of a national dialogue uh, about changes in our society and certain rules that are going to be broken and even the form of storytelling. I mean, one of the things that happened with HBO, you can see with the Sopranos, was you were able to continue to do storytelling it wasn't like each episode had to live on its own and so just the very idea of storytelling was something that was very impactful and i think that you know you start to look at all these examples and you realize things would have been a lot different if hbo hadn't been around and is it in the culture and dna of the company as executives come and go it's just embedded at this point yeah i think so i think it is i think it's part of i think it's part of the recipe that HBO knows that it has to use. Now, there were times when they didn't do it as successfully as other times. But the truth is that I still think that through the years, there's been strong connective tissue about the way HBO executives use their impressionistic mind and develop programs and try and distinguish themselves in the marketplace. And uh, I think we're going to see even more of that. James Andrew Miller, the book is Tinderbox. HBO's Ruthless Pursuit of New Frontiers. James, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, thanks for having me, and thank you for that uh, very wise, lovely introduction. Thank you. Appreciate it.